Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. My eating disorder started at seven. You get to that point where you just, you just don't know what to do. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast, brought to you by BCU, customer-owned banking for you. It's been a long and at times slow process. (sighs) The eating disorder's in charge and your daughter's not there. Find someone that you trust more than you trust your eating disorder self. I was in tears and I was screaming at the nurses, give me something to eat, my baby is kicking me. You cannot do this to this life that has no voice yet. There is hope. everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have the amazing Iris McAlpin joining me. She is based in Sacramento in the USA, and she is a certified trauma coach specializing in complex trauma, self-sabotage, and eating disorders. And she also has her own lived experience. Thank you so much for joining me, Iris. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you real time. I'd like to begin with you giving our listeners a little bit of an insight into your own personal journey with an eating disorder. Sure. Yeah. Where to begin? I mean, I feel like it started quite young for me. I think my body dissatisfaction started when I was about nine years old. At that point, I didn't really know what to do with it. I just knew that I did not like the way that I looked. Fast forward a couple of years, I started getting bullied. That was like an easy scapegoat. It's like, oh, okay, I'm being bullied because I look like this. So I should go on a diet. So I did. And it worked temporarily. I did lose some weight. And from that point on, it sort of like kickstarted this cycle of of dieting and trying to control my body and trying really to control my emotions through dieting, it just slowly escalated to the point where, you know, I was severely, severely restricting and I couldn't keep that up for very long. So it sort of ping ponged into bulimia, which is something we see happen all the time. I had severe bulimia for almost a decade and then started going through the recovery process and thought I was recovering, but I was really just binging and restricting instead of binging and purging. So all this to say, it was like this very long journey that kind of evolved over time and sort of like hit a bunch of major stops along the way. But it was something that impacted me for most of my, most of my life. How old were you when you finally managed to, to find your freedom from it? It wasn't until my late 20s. I sort of thought I was recovered before then, sort of starting in my mid-20s. I just kind of switched. I was like over-exercising to compensate for binging, or I was restricting to compensate for binging. It really was a huge milestone that I wasn't purging anymore. 
but I didn't realize that that wasn't full recovery. And so it wasn't until a little bit later that I started to recognize like, hey, wait a second, maybe this binging and restricting thing isn't so great either. And so that took some additional time to really look at and manage. Was there a particular treatment approach that helped you to get well? The short answer is no. (laughs) The long answer is that it was accumulation of so many different things that I think allowed me to get better. Like what I really attribute my recovery to in many ways is just a willingness to keep trying different things because a lot of the traditional treatments were not particularly helpful at the time, but it's like little by little, you sort of piece together bits and pieces from from different modalities. And through that and through my own sort of like relentless reading and research, I was able to find my way to a healthier place. But I wish I could just say like, oh, I did this one thing and it totally changed everything and it was so great. It didn't really work that way. It was like a million little things that added up over time. I found it similarly. I mean, for me, neurolinguistic programming was particularly transformative, but Mm -hmm. it was also so many of all the other little things along the way over those 15 years prior that I really did draw upon. And I always talk to my clients about having a really good recovery tool belt with lots of different skills and strategies in there for given moments in time where you need them. And I think that's so important. I think it's important in in life in general, even when you're recovered, to have different things that you can draw upon. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. To someone who hasn't been through an eating disorder, how would you describe what it felt like to be in, like when you're really at the height of it, in the midst of it, how did it feel physically, mentally, spiritually? Living hell. (laughs) I mean, really, it was... It was torture. It was absolutely torture. It was just like being constantly tormented by my own inner dialogue. I was just ruthlessly critical of myself. Sort of couple that with a lot of self-hatred and like obsessive rumination about food, like not only planning, like, you know, what am I going to eat next and how many calories does that have and how am I going to burn it off and all of that but then also like blaming and shaming myself for the things that I had already eaten that day. And so it's just, it's like this vortex that consumes your entire life. It is really a miracle. I managed to do anything at all (laughs) during that time period. And there were definitely periods where I was not very functional at all, but there were some periods where I was able to kind of limp through it and get some things done. And and I'm still sort of impressed by that because it's pretty all consuming at, at different times. I mean, I'm sure it's not that severe for everyone, but it really can be for some people. I often use that analogy of like it being a living hell. I also use the yeah. vortex. <laughs> yeah, because that's how it feels. You know, I remember when I did recover and I was just absolutely floored by how much mental space I had in my brain. It was like cavernous. I just couldn't believe how much of it had been consumed by my eating disorder for so long. You know, like you say, it is, I mean, it's different for everybody, but I think a lot of people would be able to resonate with that feeling that it just does completely, completely consume you. Absolutely. Were there moments in it where you just felt hopeless and like, you know, will I ever be free? All the time. Yeah. I'd say I felt that way more often than I didn't. I would have flickers of hope, but mostly I felt hopeless. 
And I was really fortunate to have access to care. And I know that not everyone does. And I think, and I I would never say that it's like, of course, it's better to have access to treatment. But I was sort of even able to use that as fuel to further hate myself and shame myself. Cause it's like, look at you, you have access to therapy and like, you've tried all these different therapists and all these different things. And you still can't get over this. What's wrong with you? Like, obviously you're hopelessly ruined and there's no possibility of ever getting over this. So that was sort of playing on loop for many, many years. And it's just sort of interesting. It's like when you're in that state of mind, almost anything can be used as further ammunition to blame and shame yourself. But, you know, I think the glimmers of hope did become more frequent over time, like as I progressed through recovery. And I do think sort of underneath all of the self-loathing and all of the negative self-talk, there was a part of me that kind of did always know that I that I would get over it. It was very quiet at the beginning, like almost silent. But I think there there was that voice. And so I think in some ways that did kind of carry me through, even though it wasn't a prominent voice. I just think I had this deep knowing somewhere, maybe it was like my soul or spirit, or I don't, I'm not sure, but I think that helped me put one foot in front of the other in terms of just at least continuing to try different treatments until things could finally kind of click together. It just seemed to me there's so many intelligent people in the world, like somebody has to have answers for this. And so I had to go digging pretty deeply to find those answers, but they were there. It's wonderful that you did have that real deep, you know, inside of you, that knowing. I can't say that I really felt that, but what I did really hold on to, to pull me through those times where I felt like I'd lost hope or clinicians said that there was no hope is the people in my life who held on to that hope for me, no matter what. And I think that can be really, really powerful in recovery when you really are sort of grappling as to go, okay, hang on, there are people here who do believe in me, do believe that there's hope in my recovery. Yeah. And it's interesting now that we're talking about this, I think some of it, some of that knowing came from, you know, I had a, a close family member who went through some really significant mental health challenges and their whole world shattered and it didn't look good. Like it really didn't look good for them at one point. And then, you know, slowly over time, they got to this really good place and became this sort of source of strength for the whole family. And I think if I hadn't seen that, like it would have absolutely felt impossible. And so I think, I mean, this is why it's important, why I choose to share my story. Cause I think if you don't have someone in your world who's fallen apart and been able to put the pieces back together, it's hard to know that that's the thing that can happen. And so hearing stories of other people and, and watching their process can give you hope when you can't really create that for yourself. I completely agree. I always say that I wish I didn't know of anyone personally when I was struggling who had come out the other side of an eating disorder. And I mean, that's a big part of why I do what I do now is because I think having that living, breathing proof that recovery is possible can be really, really transformative. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not sure how old you are, but you know, for me, social media wasn't a thing when I was in high school, when it was really, you know, at its most like high school and college was when it was at its most intense for me people didn't talk about this kind of stuff. Like you didn't like talk to your friend in class, be like, Hey, like, guess what? I like binged and purged last night. Nobody did that. So for all I knew, like I knew there were, there were like 
books on eating disorders because my therapist seemed to know what that was. <laughs> but other than that, I had no idea really that there were a lot of other people experiencing what I was experiencing. And while social media, you know, the jury is still out if it's a net positive or not. But I do think one silver lining of social media is that people are talking about it. At least that element of social media would have been helpful for me as a teenager, just knowing that I wasn't this freak of nature experiencing this bizarre thing that no one else could understand, you know? Mm, I agree. I do think that it's such a double-edged sword though. And I do often say if social media was at the height that it is now when, you know, when I was 12, when I was first diagnosed, I honestly don't know whether I would have survived because I was so into the comparison thing. At least at that point, I had to kind of go to the magazine shops and look at the magazines and compare myself that way. Didn't have it in the palm of my hand and just that constant barrage of it everywhere. And I don't think at that point either society was nearly as diet culture saturated as it is now. But I do completely agree with what you're saying, though, that there is this silver lining of social media where you can feel less alone and resonate with people's stories. And also there are some incredibly inspirational recovery accounts and things like that out there. And I know that you and I both use social media in that way to to spread that message of hope and to make people think and challenge their eating disorders. I think it comes down to being really mindful about who you follow and who you surround yourself with. I often do social media cleanses with my clients to really make sure that what they're following is in line with their goals and what they want their life to look like. I completely agree. You know, when I sort of thought I was recovered and wasn't, I think part of that for me was that I was following a lot of like Fitzbo accounts and, you know, like healthy food accounts and things that were very, very steeped in diet culture. And I didn't know what diet culture was at that point in time. And so like it it can be a tool to kind of fuel the eating disorder. But now if you look at my feed, it's like, people of every size and shape and color and cultural background. Like I make a point to really follow a diverse range of people so that I'm not just like seeing the same things fed back to me over and over again. And I don't follow accounts that are, you know, all about diet culture things. And I think the reason I like Instagram more than other social platforms, I think is because you really can curate what you're seeing. Like I go onto Twitter and everyone's retweeting things and it's just, it can be sort of a surprise what I see on there. But on Instagram, you know, you're just, you can find people that reliably post helpful, like healthy, empowering content. And that's all you're going to see. It's much more predictable than other platforms for me, at least. And so I've found it to be actually quite helpful, but it, it is a tool. Like I just don't go onto my discover page I mean, I can sort of do it now, but still, like, I'm sure if I pulled it up right now, there would be something about dieting on there just because I'm a woman within a certain age range and they know through their algorithms that we're like susceptible to stuff like that. So, you know, be careful with the discover feature, but if you're just scrolling on your feed and you're only following people that are really healthy and affirming, then you're pretty safe on there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also, you know, following stuff that's not to do with bodies. Right, right, yeah. You know, like travel and yeah. I really love flowers and beautiful baking accounts or whatever it is so that it's not all just focused on on appearance, I think is really important. For sure, yeah. Have you come to a place of acceptance with your body now? I really have. It still surprises me because it's just like I spent most of my life really not being that way. So 
even to this day, like I'll look in the mirror and I'll see like cellulite or I'll see something that before I would have just like eviscerated myself over. And I don't. And I'm like, wow, this is cool. It still sort of has a novelty effect to it for me because it it just, it was such a dominating voice for so long. And, and I would be remiss not to say that I do still have bad body image days sometimes. I think that's normal to some degree, given the culture that we are in. The difference is that that used to like ruin my whole day, if not my whole week. And now it's like 30 seconds of like, oh, wow, I don't think my butt looks good in these jeans or whatever. And that's it. And I can move on and do things that I care about that sort of make that a non-issue. Yeah, absolutely. I always say that the difference for me now is that even if I have days where I'm not feeling great, it doesn't change how I nourish myself. And as you say, you just move on. It's a fleeting thought of, oh, well, okay, I'll put on a nice flowing dress. Yeah. And I think it used to stop me from going out with friends or doing things that I enjoy because it's like, I can't be seen like this. And so it just would really impact my life. And now it's like, whatever. Like I've just gotten to this point where I just know that like nobody's scrutinizing me the way I used to scrutinize myself. And even if they were, I don't really care. So it's just, yeah, it just doesn't have the same grip that it, it once had. So that is possible. Yes. Was there something in particular, like a particular tool or something that you used to get there? Or was it just a gradual process? I know for me, you know, I went through sort of a space of like body neutrality and then I kind of got to that yeah. acceptance. And then I came to a place where I did really, truly love my body. What was it like for you? It was similar. And something I just, I really think is important to say, it was easier for me in some ways because I wasn't dealing with like weight stigma I'm a white woman. I've never been like super large bodied. So there were certain things that made this process easier for me. And I don't want to discount that because I think for certain people, it is harder to get to that place because they're, they're getting actively shamed by people. I mean, I see it all the time with some of my friends who are fat activists online. They just get the worst trolls and who knows what what's happening in their just day-to-day life. But I know what happens when they go to the doctor and, you know, there are experiences that make that more challenging if you're living in a larger body. So I, I want to validate that experience if that's something that you're experiencing. But I think for me, I mean, yes, it was a very gradual process. It took me quite a bit of time to really internalize that my physical appearance wasn't the most interesting thing about me. And so there just wasn't so much tied up in that. Because I I mean, we are fed a lot of messages that like women are supposed to be beautiful and sexy and like look flawless and put together and be desirable to men and maybe women alike, you know, just like everyone should want you and you should be, you know, all these check boxes. And I really believed that. Like, I really thought that that was what I was here to do was to be like infinitely desirable and lovable purely by the way I looked. And, you know, it took, it took some like unbrainwashing for me to realize that's not what I'm here for. And that, that took quite a bit of time to get to that place. So I just want to be real about that. But, you know, I think now it's just kind of, it's just not a big deal what I look like. There are a lot more important things for us to be focusing on and filling our life with. Yes. Yes. 
Can you explain to our listeners about the work that you do now? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so something that was challenging for me in my recovery and also like in my early work as a coach is that I felt like a lot of the treatments were dealing with symptoms and were sort of like behavioral modification, maybe going a little bit deeper, but I didn't feel like anything was really tackling what was at the root of my symptoms. That kind of sent me on this quest of like, you know, what what's going on here? Why is this happening? That search led me to trauma. Trauma has many faces. It's not just like war or, you know, being assaulted or car accidents or those kinds of things that people often think of. It can be much more subtle experiences, especially in our early life. And so I I became sort of obsessed with understanding trauma because not only did I experience a good amount of trauma, I started noticing all of my clients did as well in different ways. And so it sort of led me down this rabbit hole and I got a ton, a ton, a ton of training in trauma. And that helped me understand more deeply what was fueling my old patterns. Because at that point I was pretty well recovered. And then also, you know, what was fueling patterns that my clients were dealing with. And I mean, we could spend hours discussing that, but I think, you know, understanding complex trauma in particular really illuminated a lot for me. And so now I, I practice something called the neuroaffective relational model or NARM, because that's kind of a mouthful. And it wasn't designed for eating disorders. It was designed for complex trauma. But I find that through this model, I'm actually able to help my clients get to a healthy place much more quickly because we're really looking at what's like underneath all of this. Here's what's at the root. It's a really rewarding process. I'm sure it's quite in depth and detail, but can you give me a little bit of an overview of what that model actually entails and why it's so effective? Well, one thing I really like about it. So before I found NARM, I found something called somatic experiencing, which is a modality for mostly dealing with shock trauma but it's, it works with the nervous system to help you reclaim a sense of safety in your body. And so I, I did that first and that was really, really powerful. And I, I took a bunch of trainings on that as well. I'm, I'm not a somatic experiencing practitioner, but I've studied it a lot. It still didn't like fully capture the whole picture for me because I felt like there was still sort of a theoretical framework that it was missing that and it wasn't really addressing early attachment trauma. I think it maybe does if you go through like all the training, but it's it's not really designed for that. So I, I kept searching and I found NARM. And NARM is kind of like the cousin of somatic experiencing in a way because it really takes into account the physical body and the nervous system, the mind-body connection. Like it, it really taps into that. There's a lot of different types of psychology that also incorporate the body, but NARM like deeply incorporates that. So that was part of it because I think if you've had an eating disorder, chances are you're pretty disconnected from your body. It takes being disconnected from your body to be able to maintain those behaviors because they're painful and horrible. So if you're like really connected, then you're not going to be able to do that. So 
It's a model that helps reestablish the connection between mind and body, which I think is critically important in recovery. And it's a very respectful model in the sense that it, it doesn't relate to our symptoms as like problems that need to be solved. It relates to them as strategies that helped us manage overwhelming circumstances in the best way that we knew how at the time. And by being respectful, it sort of releases a lot of shame and and blame and self-hatred that is often like fueling these behaviors. And so there's a lot more obviously to it, but those two things really drew me to it initially. I didn't see other modalities doing that in quite the same way that NARM does. It's really interesting what you say about it's very similar to NLP in terms of looking at those things that we used at that point. My NLP therapist used to always say to me, you did the best that you could at that point in time with all the tools, skills, knowledge and resources that you had and did take away that, as you say, that shame, that guilt, that almost stigma around why was I engaging in that behavior or or that strategy. Exactly. And I think that for me was incredibly transformative. And one of the other things that she said to me was like, anorexia is something that you do. It is something that you are doing. It's not, you are not anorexic. It's like, it's something that you're doing and therefore we can, you know, we can help to change your brain. So it's something that you don't do anymore rather than this idea that it's something that we have to manage for the rest of our lives and we can't get rid of it. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's easy to feel like it's happening to us, but we are doing it. And I guess I say that like there is some way in which it's happening to us in the sense that certain circumstances conspired and maybe biology also conspired to like create a set of circumstances that made that a necessary adaptation. But also we are either taking actions or maybe in the case of, you know, restricting, not taking actions, we do have some capacity to modify those actions with support, of course, over time. It's always a choice point, even though it might not feel like you have a choice at a given point in time. If you get support around you, there is always that multiple times a day, these choice points is always that chance of whether you're going to go further into the eating disorder or you're going to go closer to freedom. And I think it's yeah. just about having someone who can help you to see that in that moment because it's just so loud in your head sometimes. Yep, certainly. Now, how important do you think your lived experience is in terms of your ability to relate to your clients? Such a good question because it's it's sort of hard to answer because I can't really simulate what it would be like to not have that experience and relate to my clients. In some ways, I think the most important element of it is that they come in knowing that I have some lived experience and that allows them to feel safer to talk to me about it without feeling judgment. You know, there are some really skilled clinicians out there that don't have the lived experience and can be helpful, but I think I think it creates automatic relational safety, which is incredibly important when when healing trauma, it's incredibly important with working with eating disorders. And so if people know that I had severe bulimia for a long time and they come to me with an eating disorder that, you know, I've I've had clients tell me that people get scared off, people kind of relate to them in a pitying way or, you know, just a lot of ways that just don't really help. And so I think if, if we've lived that experience, we're just able to connect a little bit more quickly and for them to feel safer. And, and that is huge in terms of predicting outcomes. 
I completely agree. I often feel like there's a real implicit sense of trust because, you know, we've walked the path, we've been there, we've been in the trenches, we get it. And I think there's also, I know for me as a coach, I find it really helpful because I can call people out. Yes, (laughs) totally. Yeah. It's like, we know what to look for because we used to do that. It's like, I know exactly where your mind is going because mine went there too. And that can be super helpful for spotting things that somebody who hadn't had that experience might miss. Yeah, totally. Why is it so important to work on healing trauma? Oh boy. It's it's an interesting question because it's like, I think it depends on what you want. The reason why I say that is because, you know, and some trauma therapists might be like aghast that this would be my response, but I, I don't think everyone needs to or has to. I just think it depends on, on what you want. Like some people are able to kind of like exist on more on the surface and like are able to live a life that works for them without having to go through the the pain and challenge of like unpacking old wounds and healing all of your trauma. And if you're one of those people, I get it. I think if you want to live an examined life and you want to be deeply connected to yourself and it's important for you to be able to deeply connect with others you're going to have to deal with your trauma at some point, because if we don't like that self-connection that, and that connection with others becomes fraught with a lot of challenges, that's really it. It's like, it's not for everyone. It is hard. I guess for me, it just, it didn't feel like there was a choice. It was either I was going to deal with this or my life was not going to work. The people that are in that place know that to some degree. It's like, this isn't working. My relationships aren't working. My life isn't shaping up the way I want it to. And I've tried everything and it's still not working. Trauma might be the answer. It might not be, but it might be. There is so much richness and so much joy and fulfillment and connection and passion and aliveness that's available when we're willing to do that work. I often talk about it as being a leap of faith. Certainly. Huge, yeah. Yeah, and really coming face to face with that nitty gritty stuff. I mean, for me, it was things that I, no other therapist had forced me to face in the 15 years of therapy that I'd had. And it was like, it was confronting. It was horrible. You know, I ran yeah. from it at first, but then came to the conclusion that if I didn't deal with these things, then they were going to continue to bubble up and continue to have a controlling effect on my life. I think something for me that I found really interesting during getting well was this idea of comparative trauma. And for me, when anyone had ever talked about trauma before, I thought, well, I'm lucky because I've never experienced any trauma. Because as you say before, you know, I associated that with war, sexual assault, child abuse, stuff like that to me was trauma um, or a significant accident. But what my NLP therapist helped me to see was that there were other things like, for example, something as small as getting my braces on. And I had them for a very long time and I had a lot of teeth pulled out. And I remember screaming on the way to the orthodontist, you know, and I remember the pain of having them tightened. I remember the headgear at night. I remember all of those things. She went right back to birth because my mom had a very traumatic birth with me for a number of reasons. And these were things that I'd never, ever considered would have an impact on me as an adult. Absolutely. Yeah. Those things can be huge. 
we tend, especially with early life things, and also with medical things, that's another big one. We tend to look at it through this like rational adult lens where it's like, well, I needed that surgery to save my life, but your nervous system doesn't know that. Your body doesn't know that. It's like, holy crap, somebody is cutting me open. Anesthesia doesn't block pain. It blocks memory formation. So your body's experiencing all the pain, but you just don't remember it. And so medical trauma is something that can have really big ripple effects. And people are like, I shouldn't feel traumatized because I needed that to save my life. It doesn't really matter in terms of, of the way the body processes things. And similarly, we can look back on certain events in childhood and say like, oh, well, that's not a big deal or oh, that's normal. Like from the adult perspective, because if it happened to you again as an adult, it probably wouldn't be a big deal. But if you're three and you don't really know what's going on and you don't have any tools and resources at your disposal to process challenging events, maybe that for you at that time was catastrophic. And that's that is valid, even if it's on paper, not as terrible as something somebody else experienced. And I think it's it's important not to feel guilt and shame around that either. Look at it and go, well, because I know for me, I was like, well, how, why? Has that affected me so much? You know, that I know so many other people who've experienced far worse things than that and almost disparaging yourself as to like, why is that, was that such an issue for me? And why has that led me to where I am? And I think it's important to have grace and just accept that, hey, this did affect me in the way that it has affected me. And that's not my fault. It just is the way yeah. that my life has evolved. Yeah. And a lot of times we're sort of socialized either through our families or through, you know, other like babysitters, whoever in our environment to relate to ourselves through blame and shame. And there's sort of this belief that it's like, well, if I don't shame myself or if I'm not hard on myself, then I'm going to just go off the rails and like, become this terrible person or I'm not going to get anything done. That may have been true when you were a little kid because little kids will kind of go off the rails if they don't have somebody there to kind of keep them in line. But, you know, as an adult, we don't, we don't need to do that. It doesn't work. It usually actually has the opposite effect. That's a big sort of like, like passion of mine is helping people heal that sort of like shame-based narrative that they're carrying from, from an earlier time. You talk a lot about self-sabotage and the detrimental impact yeah. that this can have. Are there some strategies that you can share with our listeners today for dismantling that? Yeah, I mean, I think the key thing when you're looking at self-sabotage, because the tendency is when we do something that's self-defeating, we think like, this is crazy. Why am I doing this? There's something wrong with me. This doesn't make sense. Like, you know, all these things. And the reality sort of like, you know, an eating disorder, it, it is serving some function. And asking why isn't usually helpful immediately. M- maybe that can offer some insight, but I find asking the question when is much more useful. And when I say that, I mean, like, when would this behavior have made sense for me? When I started asking when instead of why, I got a lot of answers. So uh, for example, I used to call in sick all the time. I wasn't actually sick. I just couldn't get out of bed. And I would like order delivery food to binge eat. And I would like binge watch TV for days on end. Like I ran up tons of credit card debt ordering food. (laughs) And, you know, in college, like got fired from jobs from doing this. It was like wrecking havoc on my life. I couldn't figure out why I couldn't stop doing this and kept asking why, and it just didn't make sense. But then when I asked the question, when, it 
started to kind of piece together. So basically the short version is that when I was little, I had two family members that got very, very sick at the same time. And my mom was sort of the the sole person available to, to help deal with that. And so she was constantly leaving to go to the hospital. And that was, you know, I was only like one and a half years old. And at that age, mom is the world, like mom is everything. You know, it was devastating for me at that time for her to be constantly leaving. And so sort of in my child brain, which was clever for a one and a half year old, I sort of figured out like, if you're sick, mom will pay attention to you. And so if you're like high functioning and like doing all the things, you don't get attention from mom. But if you are like incapacitated, sick, in bed, like mom will be there. And so I internalized that and and started doing that. I started getting sick a lot and she would, you know, bring me food and like take care of me. And so that became this like go-to strategy for me. So once I could see that, once I was able to put those pieces together, I realized what I was really wanting is like nurturing and support and love and care. And those were things that as an adult, I now had more capacity to go get. Like one and a half, I didn't have that capacity, but as an adult, I do. So that that self-sabotage strategy made perfect sense, just not present time. And so asking that when allowed me to put pieces together that I couldn't have otherwise. I love that. I love that. The three pillars of your practice as a coach, a consent, curiosity, and participation. Can you explain what that means to you and why it's so important? Sure. Yeah. Consent is really so foundational. And that's because if you're, if you're not ready to dig into something, pushing you to go there is probably not going to go well. That's not to say there might be like gentle nudges outside of your comfort zone, but like your consent needs to be online. So I asked my clients permission to to go certain places and I'll make it clear to them like if you're not ready to to go here we won't for the clients knowing that they have the ability to pump the brakes at any point and that I'm not going to you know make them go somewhere they don't want to go I think is is really important for that trust piece and then curiosity I just think I mean curiosity is the opposite of judgment and shame it's like instead of relating to ourselves as this is who you are and you're this bad person or you're this flawed person. It's sort of like, who am I? Like, what's there? What, what is my experience? What, what does this mean? And so by asking questions rather than deciding that we already know who we are is incredibly important in the healing process. Also, it can be fueled to, to keep trying new things and to keep experimenting. It's like, it's a more playful orientation toward life. At least for me, that's how I think of it. And then the participation, you know, I, I've had some people come to me and expect me to just like do something to them, some kind of like Jedi magic on their mind. If only. <laughs> right. I wish. I mean, that'd be cool. I wish I could do that, but um, I can't. So, you know, you have to be an active participant in your own process and be willing to show up and ask yourself some difficult questions and continue to explore even when we're not in a session because most of your life is not in session. Most of your life is, you know, off on your own doing your thing. And so to just expect that you can show up for an hour and have somebody Jedi mind trick you and you just are going to heal, that's not 
That's not how it works. So you have to be an active participant in your own process. I completely agree with all three of them. (laughs) It's so lovely that you've, you've clarified that because I think it really sets it out for people. It's like, okay, well, I've got to meet these three requirements if this is going to be the most effective. Right. Yeah. What is the most valuable thing that your eating disorder journeys taught you? You know, it just, I think what it's taught me is that, and this maybe sounds a little cliche, but it's just like, if you give up, you could be potentially robbing yourself of absolutely incredible things. (laughs) And so there were so many points where I wanted to give up so many, so many, so many, so many. And if I had done that, I I wouldn't be doing what I do for a living, which I absolutely love. I wouldn't be married to my husband. I wouldn't be, you know, living in California. There are so many things that are good in my life. So many friendships, so many experiences that I would have missed out on. And so it's like, you don't know how it's going to turn out. So that's where this curiosity thing comes in again. It's like, it taught me to stay curious. It taught me to, to not give up because as bad as things might seem, they will change. It doesn't automatically mean they're going to get better if, if you're not like working at that, but things will change and it might just be better than you could have ever imagined. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What are the best ways that people can support someone who is in the midst of, of trauma therapy? I would say do your own reading and research if you're willing with a little warning label that it might bring up some of your own stuff. And I would also say ask questions rather than making assumptions about what their experience is, where they are in their process. The more you can relate from a place of inquiry rather than like judgment or assumption. I just think that can be really helpful because I just remember when I was going through my trauma recovery process, which happened later, there were people that kind of had preconceived notions about what that meant and they didn't really ask. And so it just kind of, it made me feel like just missed, like people just weren't really seeing me or understanding my experience. And so I just think compassionately asking questions can feel really, really good. And also if they don't want to tell you, please respect that too, because it can be nice to be asked. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you want to like spill your guts and share everything. You may not be at that place yet. So also just being really respectful of people's timing and just trust that when they're ready to share, they will. And until then, like pushing them to share is only going to make them want to share less. So just to be patient with people. And for anybody out there listening today who who knows that there's trauma there that needs to be dealt with, who knows that not dealing with it is only allowing them to get to a certain place in recovery, but they're yeah. scared, they're scared to do it. What would you say to them? Yeah, I mean, I would say that it, it, it is scary. You know, it is scary to face trauma. Finding somebody that allows you to feel safe and you may have to check out a few people before you find that. But finding somebody that lets you feel safe and also will go slowly with you. You know, some trauma sometimes is just simply too much too soon. And so, you know, somebody that, first of all, somebody who's really trained in trauma is very important because not even all therapists are. You have to get specialized training in it and coaches. So finding somebody with training, finding somebody who makes you feel safe and somebody who will 
prioritize going slow over like giving you super quick results with trauma. Cause with certain things, quick results are, you know, what's called for and what you want. But I think baby steps are actually much better when you're working with trauma because it can flood your nervous system if you do too much too soon. So just, I think it's helpful to know that going into it, just to like titrate it and go slow and that's good. And finding somebody who's willing to be patient with you through that. You have some incredible resources online available for people to access. How do people get access to them? The quickest way is just to go to my Instagram, just because I have a link tree link in there that has links to a bunch of stuff. So if you go to my Instagram, it's just at Iris McAlpin, click on the link in my bio and it'll send you to podcasts, blog posts. I have a free masterclass on self-sabotage which is also kind of a class on complex trauma. And so pretty much everything you would want to find out about me, you can find out on there. So that's the best way to go. Thank you for all the work that you do, because not only, you know, the work that you do with individual private clients, but I think some of the resources that you have online, um, your content on social media, you know, it really, really, I know it resonates with a lot of my coaching clients. And I know, I know myself, it takes a lot of time and energy to, to put that out there and it's from the heart. And so thank you for that. I really want to honor you for that and for taking the time to speak with me today, because I know that this conversation will help a lot of people to probably finally start addressing some of the things that they know have been holding them back in recovery. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much. And likewise, thank you for the work that you're doing. It's so needed. There is hope at ended.org.au. This is the End Eating Disorders Podcast, brought to you by BCU, customer-owned banking for you. This is a Casco Media Production.